Hey, Rock, how are you? Doing well, John. How are you? Good. This week, we'll just do like a quick catch up. And then, you know, every other show, we're trying to do a YouTuber and then a company founder. And this week, we want to do an interview, just an episode on you and just an episode on me. So today, uh, I'll give a little bit of my background and I might even reveal my age. You had put up a video on uh, grooming tips and I realized that I should brush my teeth more. Yeah, well, actually, <laughs> that was a controversial tip. Um, yeah, I think there there are certain foods or drinks that I guess you should wait a little while before brushing your teeth. Uh, but yeah, same same principle applies. You know, it's like after coffee and, and red wine and stuff like that, it's good to rinse your mouth out at the very least or maybe do a light brush. Um, that's something I've been doing ever since my dentist told me, and I've really noticed a difference um, especially with like the, just, you know, your breath and obviously keeping your teeth white. So yeah, most people don't brush enough. I know several years ago, I can't remember if it was my dentist or something I read, but when I had realized that, you know, the main cause of bad breath is your tongue and you have to have like a, I, I, I don't have anything now that doesn't have like a tongue cleaner on the back. I have that quip toothbrush that I really like, and you got to get that gunk off your tongue in order to save your mouth really. Yeah. You can't neglect the tongue. And you did your, uh, let's see, update on the Beamer uh, to show people, I guess, the difference between driving it in basically winter conditions and like spring, summer. Yeah, anybody that has an electric car knows that the weather affects your battery range. The main thing with winter on an electric car is there's a certain operating temperature that the battery needs to be at in order to drive. So like you can, uh, even at 10 degrees, Fahrenheit, you can start the car and start driving, but then it warms up the battery itself. So there's like a tiny, I don't know if it's a motor or, you know, whatever technology that they use to heat the battery, but it, the car has to keep that at a certain temperature. And so that degrades your range, but also same thing, like if you run the heater, if you run the air conditioner, anything that would use gas or energy in a car and a regular car is, is that much more, um, critical on an electric car. And so when I first got it and I posted my original video, everybody said, Hey, was it drive like in the winter and what's the range like? And so I tracked it all winter and I found out that on very cold days, you won't make it very far in your electric car. So definitely a early adopter thing. And I knew that signing up for it, but, uh, this definitely something to take into consideration if you live North. And you were doing that manually with a spreadsheet or are you using its built in tracking app or something like that? No, every day I would uh, make a note of the temperature when I left my house and I would, I would make a note of the temperature for each part of my drive. So my drive to work, my drive from work. And then I would put in my percentage of battery that was, um, you know, in each of those situations so I could track it in total. There are really easy ways to track it within the app. And then I actually have, uh, it was, I bought it from my old car, but it's the automatic, the little dingus that you put into the obd port and that tracks like your gas mileage your trip efficiency and everything else um but you don't really need that in an electric car so i did it pretty manually there's probably an easier way to have done it in an automatic way but uh i can i tend to be slightly old-fashioned luckily it wasn't pen and paper yeah seriously typing it up on the typewriter i uh somehow ended up on your linkedin profile and it, it looks like from your uh uh I don't know what they're called, endorsements or something, where other people write about you that you're some sort of a, a savant. So, <laughs> so I want I want to figure out, uh, you know, what what your origin story is, 
and uh, you know we always try to get uh, out of our guests you know their origin story and why they started doing whatever they're doing. Um, so yeah, I think this would be a good a good episode to get to know you a little bit. You tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, I like savant. That's the first time uh, I've been described as that. But uh, so in, in our first episode, we talked about and I was born in uh, Poughkeepsie, New York. Cause my dad was. I don't think he was in engineering at IBM. He was in technology, uh, something with you know networks, computers, whatever. You were in a, you were in a technology field working at IBM. But uh, so I guess even going back further, my great grandfather emigrated from Ireland, from right outside of County Cork, and he came over in the seminary to be a priest. Him and his brother, and uh, when they came over, they were in the seminary becoming priests and they would make moonshine and whiskey in their bathtub in the seminary and they would use somebody else's bathtub. So one day um, my great grandfather was in his room and you know, word got around campus obviously. And the priest walked in, they saw the device that it was actually his brother making the moonshine, but they, they took, you know, they dumped the tub, took all of his gear threw him out in the lawn and kicked him out of the seminary. And then his brother came back and was like, Hey, where, where, where'd my brother go? Where'd my stuff go? And, uh, so that's my, that's how I came to be was that my grand great grandfather got kicked out of the seminary in, in Chicago. And then he, uh, took a train to Pittsburgh because the mills were hiring. This was in the, uh, late 1800s, early 1930s, I, I believe. So then, um, so then my grandfather, Robert Shanahan. He stayed in Pittsburgh. He was in the transportation industry and he actually started a transportation company in 1989, Shanahan Transportation, still going today. Uh, he was one of four children. And then um, my grandfather had nine children. He had five boys, three girls, or no, he had eight children, six boys, two girls. And my dad was the second youngest out of the litter. And uh, then I am one of four. So my dad is Joe and uh, have been in have been in Pittsburgh for generations now, but um, we're kind of spread out all over the the country. I got family, you know, in different places. And actually right now I'm planning a trip over to Ireland in order to possibly meet up with some of that old family because they're still there in Ireland, which is pretty cool. That's awesome. I've I've never been. I, I'd love to go sometime. I've I have some some roots over there too on my dad's side, but um, have, haven't made that trek yet. I'm sure it'd be an awesome time. Yeah, you don't get away with having last name either O something or Mick something without having some Irish in there. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're you're uh, that story of your great grandfather and coming here and making moonshine in the bathtub of the seminary. That's that's got to be one of the most Catholic things I've ever heard. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Yeah, we. St- I mean, we still remain fairly Catholic. Uh, I think every generation gets obviously gets a little bit less because none of us are becoming priests anymore. But uh, yeah, that's. I guess that shows the nature. I mean, even as far back as then, you know, that shows my own nature is to be kind of like a entrepreneurial prankster type uh, type of deal. I mean, it kind of just runs runs in the blood. So what? So your your grandpa was an entrepreneur, and then. Um, what what did your and then your dad was at IPM IBM and did he was he a career guy there or did he do something else after that? Uh, he was there for I th- 
I think around 10 years, and then he came back and he became vice president at Shanahan Transportation as they were growing and expanding. So he ended up being there for almost 20 years. And then on my mom's side, um, I don't know their origin story as well. We've On my mom's side, it's, they've been a, a Pittsburgh family for many years, but um, they originally, they were the Ohenans. They dropped the O when they came over. And so they were also Irish. And my grandfather on my mom's side in 1985 started an ice cream store. So it's a homemade ice cream store and candy shop in Pittsburgh, Sugar and Spice, that is still going today. I think we just celebrated 33, 32 years. That, I mean, to me, that was where I was really cutting my teeth and growing up is every kid in the family spent summers working at the ice cream store, washing dishes, scooping ice cream, cleaning the floors and the toilets. And so both sides of my family really have that, uh, you know, started their own business, entrepreneurial. And that's really what ingrained in me at an early age was if you don't like what you're doing, just go figure something else out and, and run it yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, that, and that's, I guess, part of the fuel or reasoning behind what you're doing with the Cavalier, right? Yeah, definitely. So that's, there's a, there's a logical leap to make there that I can, uh, I'll go through. So uh, yeah, so born, born in New York, we were back here by the time I was like three. So, you know, I, I just always say that I'm from Pittsburgh, even though I was born outside of the state. Growing up, I actually stole my parents, like the DV cameras, the mini DV cameras as a kid. And then, you know, my because my dad was always a little bit in technology, like we were the first ones to have internet on our streets. And, you know, I remember getting the first digital, one of the first Kodak digital cameras, just because my dad was always interested in that stuff. But we had like a Sony Handycam uh, camera. And I would, I think as, as young as five or six, I would shoot videos with my cousins and my friends and we would make little movies and so I've, I've always had like i've always wanted to get a camera and i would when i was younger i started john inc which was like my my production company and we would i would put like do artwork for vhs's and i'd print it out and uh color things and so i was always like really interested in doing that and when i, I was like when i grew up i wanted to you know, be a director or, or something along those lines and i have some of the tapes i don't know if i'll ever put them out on the internet but uh we did some pretty it's always funny to watch yourself as a, as a little kid and the things that used to either think were funny or or a dramatic movie that we made i'll declare right now if we get uh if we get sponsored by stamps.com we're releasing the john inc video collection yeah maybe that could be like like a patreon perk is you get to see the the original production videos of john inc <laughs> So yeah, so I I did those tapes as a kid. Always was interested in that, and then you know I've always been more on the creative side. I remember uh, I would I, I love to draw, I love to paint. Um, I've still got some of my some of those types of things from when I was a kid. And and my uncle was a graphic designer by trade, and so that kind of we have that in our background. And so I've always been more interested in in you know design and and graphics, and that I really cultivated that in. Uh, high school. So in high school, in my freshman year, you took a pick an elective, and I took graphic design. And I was fir- that was the first time I was ever exposed to Photoshop and to Illustrator. So even in middle school, I don't know, I can't remember what the program was, but there was a program I used to use where you could animate stick figures and make little gifs and like make little movies. And I would use that, and I would use PowerPoint to like make 
stupid commercials and like all this stuff. And then in high school, I got exposed to Illustrator and vector images and like illustration on digital illustration in Photoshop. And I also took a graphic arts class where we printed our own t-shirts through screen printing. And that was my first real hands-on exposure with like, oh, there's actual technology you can use. You know, I used to growing up, I used to think people made commercials with PowerPoint because you could put the slides together and then do animations. And so then I started to really like dive into that. And I think that graphic design class as a freshman was, was a completely crystallizing moment when I was exposed to the fact that not only could you do this, you could do very professional things with, you know, a computer that's only $500 or $1,000, but you could actually make a living off of creating logos, creating websites. Uh, I took web design in high school and, and all this stuff. It was like the perfect timing for the things I was interested in and the th- trying to think about what I would do eventually. And so the graphic design class was pretty big. My teacher who was there went to LaRoche College and he always talked about it. It was it's one of the few accredited design schools, uh, even on the East Coast. And so, you know, that was always like in the back of my head, the Rose College Design School. That's what I could do. And then in, uh, at the end of my freshman year, I started to get involved with the video production club where they would meet like once a week and either, you know, the wrestling team needed a video shot, edited and put onto a DVD or, you know, we would do stuff for the school dances and the football team and just all these like little projects around the school that were video related, but I had never really been exposed to at that point, like Premiere. I know I knew the concept of Photoshop and digital photography, but then that's when I learned about nonlinear editing because as a kid I was using, I was splicing VCR tapes in order to make edits, but now you could do this digitally. And then I became obsessed with the idea of capturing video onto the hard drive and, you know, editing it together and the graphics, like in the, in the Sony cam, they would have like, you could do titles. And so I would like type out a title. It took forever because there was a dial wheel and I do like Disney world 2002. And then you take the video and all this stuff. So that was hugely eye opening as I had the Photoshop experience at this point, I had taken almost a year of graphic design and then, getting thrown into Premiere, it was it was like the most incredible tool that I could ever imagine where I could take video and then edit it together and then and then put it on a DVD. I, I, we, we had a 12, uh, 12 bay DVD burner at the video club. And that was like the coolest thing is I would take one DVD, put it in the top, obviously not copyrighted stuff, but we'd put one DVD, put it in the top, create 12 copies. And then you could just do that all day. And, and uh, my teacher there was, was very critical between the two, the graphic design teacher, the guy who ran the video production uh, course, hugely, hugely influential in my thinking for both of those. Hmm, that's awesome. So, so you were falling in love with the uh, video production and editing, and uh, learning about all the the digital options and man, CD burning. I, I remember that. Yeah, it was, I I remember it, it was so cool getting a faster burner, you know, like a faster uh, driver or something that could do it. You know when they when they would come out with something that was you know twice as fast or five times as fast and you could just burn CDs so quickly <laughs> just having stacks of CDs and DVDs uh, blank you know ready to go. Yeah, what an incredible time! You'd go from like a four X burner to an eight X burner, and then uh, you had the you had the DVDR, the DVD minus the DVD plus R minus R, and then the CDRs, and then the jewel cases, and like my kids will never experience. Like I used to make DVD covers 
in Photoshop. And then I would like so happily print them out. And then I would cut them based on the die, the die lines and put them in the DVD slot. And like, it looked like a professional, it was like a professional thing that we would hand over to like the football club. And like, here's 100 DVDs from your season. And like, that's, that's a huge thing. But now it's, you know, it's all on YouTube, which is nice. It's easily accessible, but there was something so, so tangible about having a DVD with, your name on it and that your, your picture went in and then, you know, you'd have the, the label maker. I don't know how many times you might've used a label maker for a DVD, but it was like sticky, a sticky paper that would go on the DVD and you could print oh, yeah. on there. And uh, um, I love that stuff. It's funny. It's funny. Cause it's kind of like, I think you mentioned a few episodes back, the Ikea effect where people tend to value their Ikea furniture, uh, maybe even irrationally highly because they put it together with their own hands. I, I feel like it's the same thing with like, I remember getting, a, a cassette player, like I guess a boombox for lack of a better word, but this one didn't even have a CD player. It was a radio and a cassette player, and you could record to cassette from the radio. And I remember probably anybody, you know, over maybe between like late 20s and like late 30s, like remembers sitting, listening to the radio, waiting for a song to come on, and then trying to hit record after the DJ stopped talking, but before the song really got into it. So you'd have this ver- this clean version of the song, and then you could make your own tapes that way. And I feel like, yeah, now you can just you can just look it up on YouTube, but you know maybe that's one reason for kind of the declining production quality. For- I mean, there's a lot of good stuff out there, but in the same way, if you can just you know take your phone out of your pocket, film something, and upload it, it's like there's there's really no ownership there. You know, there's no there's no craft. So I think it's sometimes people don't, especially younger people, don't hold themselves to as high of a standard in terms of the content and production quality, you know? Oh yeah. And definitely for music. I mean, I, I remember doing that. I had the same thing. You'd, you press record and then you'd record another song behind that. And then you'd essentially, it would you'd be your mixtape that you were able to record off the radio, which was like mind blowing. So like I had that and then I had, I moved to CDs and then I was definitely in the whole like Napster, Kazaa generation where you started to download music online. And I, like, I think about it sometimes now and the amount of hours, so that I used to have, a, I mean, we always had, had PCs growing up and I used Music Match, which was the big like music organization tool back then. And I can, I can't even fathom how many hours I spent in Music Match just putting like album art and correcting ID tags in Music Match in order to have like my perfect library and collection. And then like the computer would die and I would lose it forever because I didn't know about backing up or anything then. And so like just the amount of time that I took to do that and like, so moving from like growing up as a kid, always had a CD player. So I had like the the cassette tapes and listen to music. I never really bought cassette tapes of like professional music. I don't remember. I remember having like a radio and then I had, you know, the tapes and I'd create mixtapes. But then when CDs came out, that was when I started to carry around like the the portable CD player that you would buy based on the, the feature of how good the anti-skip was. Like if you had yeah. 10 second anti-skip, 90 second anti-skip and I would just I churned through those CD players like crazy I just didn't treat them well and then like when the iPod came out I knew about the iPod but you know, that was like so expensive like who could ever spend you know my parents will never let me spend so much money on on an iPod but I remember getting my first mp3 player which was like a Rio something or other you know it hold, it held 64 songs on a mini disc uh, or on like a sand disc thing and um then I got I got the, my first iPod Mini, and that was my first exposure to like Apple products and high quality design. Because before that, I would just buy whatever was the cheapest, like whatever cheap hard drives or video cameras or anything else. And then I bought an iPod Mini, and that was when I was like 
holy cow. Like there's something so tangible about those iPods, the old aluminum ones that I just remember that was my first real technology like love was the iPod mini. And I put my music on it and I listened to it every day on the, on the school bus and I'd wrap my headphones around it. And just like I had my name laser engraved in the, in the back of it. And like, that was my first real uh, love affair with a piece of technology was the silver four gigabyte iPod mini probably in 2005, I think, man, getting emotional, just thinking about it. it got, it got, the end of that story is it got stolen out of my locker during gym class about a year after I had it. And, uh, I never saw it again, and I was completely heartbroken forever. So when that when that oh, when that went away, um, I bought like a Creative Zen Vision M, which was like the iPod alternative at the time, which had like an FM radio built in, which the iPod did, and had a color screen, which the iPod didn't, and like all this other crap. And like that was when I really started to understand like there are other options out there. I can read reviews. I can look at comparison charts of features and XYZ. And that was when I started to, to really use the internet for like searching things and figuring out the, you know, reviews and everything. And so I remember that as being, uh, I made like a, a one pager for my mom on why I was buying the creative Zen vision M versus the iPod and the features. And she was like, okay, great. Well, whatever you want to do. <laughs> I like, this wasn't necessary, but uh, good for you. Yeah, and all the money that I made from the ice cream store, which was my, like, whatever they would pay me, five bucks an hour to wash dishes and scoop ice cream. Like, I saved up for a year to buy that thing. And, uh, man, I, I treated that with the utmost respect. You know what's funny? I had one of those, too. <laughs> no I, way. I like kinda, yeah, I was anti-Apple for a long time, and I just – I thought Apple was just – just didn't make sense to me because we were a PC family. And so when the I, the iPod came out, I was like, ah, like the wheel doesn't really make sense to me. And like, it, I don't, it doesn't really look good. And like, you probably can't really customize it. And, and so, yeah, I, I did a bunch of research and I ended up on that creative Zen. And I remember taking that on a trip. Um, I went with my family to, uh, to Turkey and, <laughs> and, uh, Greece. And I remember that that was what I had for the trip. So all the, all the music that was on there, which, you know, couldn't hold that much music. Whenever I hear any of those songs, that's like, <laughs> that's like the memory, you know? Yeah. And I mean, that thing did video right before the iPod did it. Uh, you could put your picture as the background of this like terrible typefaced did like UI designed, but yeah, I loved that thing. That was, that was great. So, so then, uh, that was high school. And then when you went to college, did you decide to major in something else? Yeah, I mean, if we're getting into this amount of detail, so I graduated high school in 2009. And at that point, so in, in high school, I guess to, to give as much detail as I feel like, I was, uh, I was a very bad kid in high school. I was suspended multiple times, lots of detentions, terrible grades. I think my final GPA out of high school was like 2.1. I was never a good student. I was always in trouble. Um, high school, it was, I had a lot of fun. I was a swim team captain. I did the video production thing. That that really was what like I wanted to go to school so that I could go to video club. And I wanted um, so as part of that trajectory as well. So I started the video. I joined the video club in my freshman year. My sophomore year, I was the only person in the video club. Everybody else had graduated. And working with the teacher who was running that, uh, he had this vision for a video production class 
in the high school. And so over those three years, not only was I doing the events and I would shoot the football, t- football games and I would shoot the wrestling and all this other stuff, but he and I developed a video production course that we then took to the school district to be implemented as a, as a elective in the higher level or in the higher grades of the high school. And the curriculum, uh, it, you know, we went through that and we included, uh, you know, there was a, there was a section of the course that you created a music video and uh, then there was another thing where you did like a family project and then the video production two course of so video production one, we got that in and that worked and then really good success there with the students. And then video production two was actually like a broadcast. So we were building the whole school was being renovated when I was there, Baldwin, Baldwin high school and the whole place was being renovated. They were wiring it with TVs and everything. And so we said video production two is going to be a broadcast course where you'll learn how to do the teleprompter and you'll learn how to properly shoot the broadcast and, and pre-record videos. So you could do like news things throughout high school. That was really my passion was not just, I mean, the arts courses I really liked. I did, you know, art metal and wood shop and all this other stuff, but the video production course, I, that's what I loved. And by the time I left that school, I was like, everybody knew me as the video production guy, like the, the technology guy. And I was also voted class clown. Fun fact. I wanted to be like, you know, best smile or something, but I got class clown. Uh, I think I heard it was like, without a doubt, I was, uh, I doubled the next guy in votes for class clown. So leaving that and having that experience, uh, I got to, I got into a little Roche, even with my bad SAT scores and my bad grades because it's a design school. I mean, if I had gone for any, if I went, if I went undecided or if I was going for some sort of whatever, uh, business course, I don't know that I would have gotten in, but because I had a good portfolio and I had a good story, uh, I got into the graphic design class, which I was very excited by. And in college is where, I really grasped onto saying, you know, this is something I'm passionate about and I want to do this. So I was excited to go to my graphic design courses. I loved, uh, you know, we did traditional and fine art and then we also did the digital art. So like each year was half and half. So there was classes where you would never touch a computer and you had to get your colored pencils and you had to get your your gouache, your, your, your paint and everything. And then there was courses on Photoshop. And so that was the first time that I something really clicked in my head. And I was like, I love this stuff. And I'm actually excited to be part of education. There's always the stat that LaRoche talked about joining where they say like 70% of your college life is experienced out of the classroom. And so not only did I love being in the classroom, but then I also got involved in the like the green club because I was walking around all the clubs and that one really spoke to me and then made a lot of friends on campus. I actually, at the end of my freshman year of college, I got hired as an RA. That way I would have my residence paid for because I'm, I got to pay for college. <laughs> private A private college is not, uh, is not cheap. And so I got hired as an RA. You went from, just to be clear, you went from getting suspended in high school to being an RA in college. Yeah, I think that comes with, and I hear this on other podcasts with other like entrepreneurs and people with ADHD is unless you're engaged, you're not, you don't care. And by the time I got to college, I really cared and I could focus my attention and my energy on something that was actually productive. But in high school, that outlet was video production. And then in all the classes in math classes and science and everything else I sat through, I was going crazy. And so I excel in the places that I'm excited by and I can dedicate myself to. But if 
you know, with, I've always struggled with math and like, if I can't, I just can't, it doesn't click for me. And so, yeah, yeah I went from class clown suspension to RA in, uh, in college, which I never, I never really thought of that in that way. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> so yeah, to the end of my freshman year, I was an RA. I think if people didn't want to hear the rest of this, they would have tuned out by now. So <laughs> at the end of my freshman year, I was hired as an RA, but at the same time, uh, at the end of my freshman year, I also proposed a Mac user group to the college because I had gotten my first Mac as a freshman in a graph design. That's what everybody uses. That was a requirement in the course. And that year, that original like love of the iPod, I had that with the entirety of Apple as a company. I watched documentaries on the history of Apple. I listened to Apple podcasts. I was so deep in Apple at that point. I used to be able to name every operating system. Every operating system is named after a cat. And I used to be able to name all the operating systems going back to like 2001. And I was so obsessed with Apple as a company and as you know their, their design aesthetic and everything else. So I proposed a Mac user group at, to the student government at the end of my freshman year. And that summer, they were opening their third Apple store in Pittsburgh, which at that time was very rare for a store for a city to have three Apple stores. We were, Pittsburgh was like the fourth city in the world to have three Apple stores. It was like unheard of. There's there's a pretty big base for that. So they were opening their third store only like 10 minutes away from, from La Roche. And so I moved home for the summer, but I went to interview with Apple uh, downtown and they, you know, they brought in hundreds of people. I mean, the stats on getting hired at Apple, it's like Stanford or something. It's like that for so many applicants, their acceptance rate is incredibly low. And so that summer I got through the first interview. I got through the second one. I talked about my Mac user group. I Obviously they could see my uh, excitement for the company and I got hired as one of the first like 60 people for this new store. And I was extremely lucky at that time because they were hiring so many that my, my chances were pretty good. And this was in 2010 when it was like, it was really peak Apple. I mean, I started six months after the iPad came out. So that was really like, as they were on the, on the, I guess, halfway point of the hockey stick of, of their growth overall in 2010. And so uh, I had to call, the guy that I had to call a RA group and say, Hey, I can't be an RA. I'm going to work part-time at Apple. And I remember, I always remember the guy was like, look, like I know working at Apple was like a dream, but being an RA is, is even more than that. And I was like, uh, okay, I'll see you guys. Can't do this. <laughs> and like, cause I, I was so infatuated with the company and everything else. I started there in August of 2010, August 11th of 2010. And we spent two weeks of this, like, group onboarding training in in the hotel in a hotel in downtown Pittsburgh and just like the energy and the intelligence the collective intelligence of the people that they get to work at Apple I think more so in the past I personally think that the quality of uh, employee has gone down slowly over time and I mean, it just goes to show they I mean they hired me in 2010 I was a eight I was a 17 year old kid when they hired me but I was passionate and I think I'd like to think that I could stick with the rest of them. I started working there. I went through this training and then I realized, so going through the training at one day, they had said something about, I didn't even realize what I was going to do there. I was just like, I'm working for Apple. I don't care. I'll clean the, clean the floors, man. And so uh, we get into the store and I realized that it's like a sales job and you go out and you sell things and you um, interact with customers and then you I, like that, I didn't. It didn't even register what I would be doing at Apple, which I guess shows how much I pay attention to some things. 
And uh, so then I was like, wait a minute, I have to sell stuff. I have to sell accessories and like all this stuff, but it's not commission based. So it's like, it was this whole weird dynamic when the store opened up that I was actually going to be taking people's credit cards. And I don't, that always stuck out at me as like, I should have realized what the hell I was doing there. And so the first couple of weeks, you're measured at Apple based on the metrics of your attachments for like accessories or the warranties or anything else. They don't compensate you in that way, but it's just like, you know, you should, most customers should have a warranty. So make sure you offer it and then, you know, you'll, you'll hit your metrics. And, uh, I struggled in the beginning because I had no idea what I was doing. And I was like, well, yeah, sure. Buy this computer. All right. See you here. You know, <laughs> you paid me two grand. I talked to you for 10 minutes and you're out of here. And, uh, so that, that mind shift of going from, like not knowing what I was doing to, I have to succeed here and I want to do well. Uh, and I could see a career path for myself. I could be, I could start out here and then I could be a manager and I could be a district manager and then I could work with Steve Jobs and I'll be the number two guy in the company. Like that was the type of thing. Then I was like, all right, this is a career path. I'm getting my degree and I'll work and everything else. But my career path could be Apple and I could, I could die an Apple employee. Like that was my, my 17-year-old mindset was like, all right, I'm an Apple employee now. I could die at this company. This is a great company. They pay for my health care and they give you a gym membership if you want it. And they reimburse you for your uh, travel expenses if you take public – like all this cool stuff And because this was my first – really my first company. So I worked every summer at the ice cream store. My first company working at Apple, it was the coolest shit in the world and I absolutely loved it. And, and to the point that I like burned myself out. So my, my sophomore year of college – I was hired as a part-time uh, specialist, like the first, you know, the first rung of the ladder. And I would spend like every hour that I wasn't in class trying to pick up shifts and work more, not just because I wanted the money and I was already trying to pay down my loans, but because I just loved being there. I loved talking about this stuff. I loved everything about it. I really burnt myself out by the second year that I was there. And I really don't have any memories of college. Like I don't remember my, you know, my freshman year, that's where all my memories are from. But my second, third and fourth year in college, I don't remember anything of like, you know, the friends I made or the activities I did. I didn't do any of that. I was constantly working at Apple. By the second year, I was pretty burnt out. And I was like, well, maybe I won't die as an Apple employee. Uh, this is weird. Yeah, it's like, maybe I won't die as an old Apple employee. Maybe I'll die this <laughs> summer from overworking. <laughs> yeah, like it really crystallized around the holidays. I mean, the stores get completely slammed. And like you you can see your metrics at the end of the day of like what you sold. And there were, you know, within a year, I had sold like a million dollars worth of stuff out of this one small store in Pittsburgh. Like I can imagine bigger stores, but I was a top sales guy the second year I was there. And I was selling like $1.2, $1.3 million worth of stuff. And not only seeing that, but realizing how much time I was there, but also you don't get paid more because you sold more stuff. Like I was going in and busting my butt to really like talk to as many customers as I could and get as many transactions. But I was making the same amount of money. I was actually making less money than people that were selling less than me because they were a higher position in the store. And that was the first time where I was like, huh. I guess I should be, uh, I guess there's a, a level of work that I can do, but also I should, it should be fair. 
How, how did you get good at sales? Was it just that you knew a lot about the products or did you like study up or what, what happened there? I definitely studied a lot and I was definitely – the passion that I had really helped because you, it comes through. Like when you talk to somebody who loves something, you like want to get on board with it. But I was – I was very, very specific in particular about improving myself as a salesperson. So I would go to everybody in the store my first year that was outselling me or that was regarded as a top salesperson. And I would ask them to listen to my interactions, give me feedback, and I would try different techniques out and and different ways of communicating and everything. So that was where I really started to develop this uh, like feedback. And, and that's a part of the culture at Apple is fearless feedback and, you know, ask for help and improve yourself. And so not only is that ingrained in the company culture, but I was so fixed on being the best and getting better. And so my real mentor at the store was a guy named Francisco. And I would, he, he used to just be, he'd be like, what problem is, is John going to come up to me with today? So like, I'd go to him after all these ones, be like, all right, I said this and this happened, but what about this? Or how can I ask the question this way? And so like, I was, I was meticulous about that and he could really see that I was passionate about it. And so by my, I think it was the end of my second year, there's an elevated sales position there, which is called an expert. I had interviewed for it once and I didn't get it. I passed the interview from a technical standpoint, but I didn't have like the leadership that they were looking for because it's a leadership role in the store. And so the feedback that they gave to me was I have to show more leadership and develop more people and, and give feedback. And so then uh, by the end of the second year, I interviewed again and I became one of the youngest experts at Apple globally. Uh, it was a pretty new role, but at that point I had I had been so feverish about saying, I need, I need to get better. I want to get better and I want to help people. And, and this is what I want to do. And this is my career path. I'm going to die as an Apple employee. And so then I became an expert. I, th I think it was the end of my second year. It's so around that time frame. Uh, but it was also extremely quick for becoming an expert. There were very few people that were there uh, for a short amount of time that became an expert. And, and I, it, doesn't, it doesn't carry much weight outside of the company, but like within the company, that was, that was a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what, uh, when did you decide to, I guess, leave Apple? Uh, was, was that in college or did you work there throughout the rest of college? Uh, as I was graduating, I realized that I didn't want to be a retail employee forever. I definitely saw the path that I could take and end up being there for a very long time. And there's people that are happy that are there for six, seven, 10 plus years. But I also realized in college, after starting at Apple that I didn't want to be in graphic design as a career path just due to some of the inflexibilities and uncertainty of graphic design. I saw more and more that to succeed in that area, you'd have to not only be good at design, but also good at web development. And you had to be like this, this, you couldn't really specialize and, and the field is very competitive. And even though I'm competitive, I didn't, I don't think, I didn't think that I have, and I still don't think that I have the skills to really be the best in that area. And so I switched my major to IT with a minor in graphic design because I'd already taken the classes. And so that was like my foresight in college just to say, you know, a technology degree is going to be important. Graphic design isn't really the field. Into the third year at, at Apple, that was when I really started to get burnt out. And I went through another holiday. Holidays are extremely grueling. I was the number one sales guy the next holiday. And so this is now holiday of 2012. And um, I was really at this point burnt out. And I had been working with a woman who came in a lot and bought a ton of stuff. This woman spent a ton of money at the Apple store. And she happened to be the wife 
of the biggest lawyer in Pittsburgh. Anybody from Western Pennsylvania knows Edgar Snyder. Every city has like a super, they call him a super lawyer. It's like the, the one lawyer that's on every billboard, on every TV ad, and everybody knows his phone number because he says it a thousand times. And uh, this woman came in, she was the chief marketing officer of the law firm. She was the one who put him on TV in the 80s and made him a name and everything else. And she would come in and just buy all the stuff and ask me questions and we would talk and she'd be like, I'm going to hire you. I, I want you to come work for me. It's like, yeah, that's funny. Okay. And then one day I was in a terrible mood. She came in, I was giving her a hard time and she was like, I'm seriously going to hire you. I want you to meet with my husband. And I said, you know what? I will do that. And so uh, on a weekend I met up with Pittsburgh super lawyer, Edgar Snyder. And he was like, you know, Sandy really wants you to work here. I mean, what do you want to do this? He was like, yeah. And so it was like a super just casual conversation. But that was when I was like, okay, this is pretty cool. He goes, all right, you will, you'll probably start at the beginning of the year. I was like, Phew. so on the first Monday of 2013, I started Edgar Snyder. And at that point, it was, that was a similar thing. I didn't really know what I was going to do there. Sandy worked in marketing. She kind of needed an assistant, but she also wanted to get more into like video and uh, internet advertising and everything else. I had some experience with that at the ice cream store. And then I had my technology Apple experience. And so she brought me in essentially to run like digital video and social media, that was like a huge deal because I didn't really have an experience, but she took a bet to say like, all right, this guy knows what he's doing and he's going to run social media, <laughs> social media. And so that was my shift. And so I started there full time. So I, I worked there part time. My second year at Apple, I worked full time 40 hours while doing 18 credits of school because I was behind by switching my major. So for two years, I worked full time and did school full time. Then my senior year, which was 2013. I started Edgar Snyder part-time. I worked there on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday because I didn't have class. And then I would go to class Tuesday, Wednesday, but then I would work at Apple on Tuesday night, Thursday night, and then all day, Saturday, Sunday to keep getting my 40 hours. So the first half of 2013, I don't remember what happened that whole time because I was working my hours at the law firm. I would go to Apple at night and, um, at, on the weekends. And then I would do my classwork never because I really didn't, you know, whatever. So I graduated in May of 2013. And at that point I had like a letter from Edgar Snyder that I was going to be a full-time employee at that point. That was, that was the whole thing. They wanted to hire me full-time. I couldn't because of school. So I came on part-time full-time and like that, I, I think that is still pretty rare now. Earlier in the years when you finished college, that was like, you have full-time job, but like not, not a lot of people get full-time jobs right out of college, except, you know, retail jobs, people get retail jobs. So that was like, I was, I was pretty cool with that. And so, you know, my responsibilities were YouTube advertising, social media advertising, uh, XYZ associated with any digital stuff. And so at that point I went full-time at Edgar Snyder, finished school. And then I stayed on part-time at Apple because I was still like passionate. I don't know. I, I, I had like a Stockholm syndrome about Apple and I was very uncertain about the law firm job. And so I continued to work almost full time at Apple on nights. I would work like two nights a week from six to 10. And then I would work all day, Saturday, Sunday, just because I wanted to keep making money or for the entire. So May through December of that year, I worked all the time. I don't remember a lot of it. And now this is 2013. So I always say May of 2013 was a pretty big month for me. So May of 2013, I graduated college, started a full time job. I bought my first house. So I had, you know, picked that out and I knew I was going to have this job and blah, blah, blah. So I bought my house in May of 2013. And then I also bought my engagement ring for my 
girlfriend at the time because even on my first date, uh, I knew that I was going to marry my wife. And I talk, I get, that's a, that's a whole separate story. So Francisco, who is my mentor at Apple had a younger sister and he was like, Oh, I want you to meet my sister. And then I met her. We went on our first date. I knew on my first date I was going to marry her. And then we dated starting in December of 2011. So that's like in parallel of our personal story uh, that, that you can explore on our website. I think I have stuff on there. So May of 2013, big month. I continue to work through all of 2013. And at the same time, I was also renovating my house. So I bought a real fixer upper uh, for a house and I had to renovate. Uh, I renovated the kitchen, both bathrooms. I re-sanded my floors. I had to put new drywall up all over the place. I stripped this, I stripped this place down to the, for the most part to the, to the uh, studs and, and essentially rebuilt the interior of this house. Uh, so I did that on the nights I wasn't working at Apple and the weekends that I wasn't working at Apple. And then in 2013 in November is when I proposed to my girlfriend. And in December of that year, I started getting like a weird feeling at work and uh, Sandy was there less and just things weren't really adding up. And then I realized that uh, I don't, I didn't think I was going to have a job in January. So the first week I go into work in January, the first, I think it was I don't remember if it was a Monday. No, no, it was a Friday. It was the first Friday of January of 2014. Uh, the HR lady comes over and is like, hey, can we talk? And I go in and they're like, you know, we're we're letting you go. We're eliminating your position. This this is it. I had this feeling. I remember like just smiling at the HR lady. I wasn't really happy with the firm. I wasn't able to do what I thought I could because Sandy, who hired me, put me underneath this other woman who was in marketing. We didn't really get along. I wanted to do things. I wanted to do certain videos. She didn't like the videos that I was doing. It was a, it was a whole ordeal. I later found out about three months after they fired me, they also fired Sandy and they, her and Edgar got a divorce. So like I was, it was kind of like a baby with a bathwater thing. It was like Edgar was getting rid of his wife and the chief marketing officer. I was hired by the chief marketing officer. I'm out too. And like the whole marketing department all got ch changed and shift around as the boss at my, who was at my time, the boss, uh, she came into more power and, and she didn't like me from the beginning anyway. So I was unemployed partially uh, in January of 2013. And I was like, what am I going to do? Like I have this house. I, uh, I got, I'm going to get married. And so I got engaged on 11, 12, 13 with the intention of getting married on 12, 13, 14, because those are the only, cause I'm like rain man apparently. Uh, and so in January, I'm like, all right, I still work at Apple. I can still make okay money there, but I need to do something, pay for a wedding and we could support, you know, support my wife. And, uh, I got student loans and all this other stuff. And that was a, that was a super stressful time in my life because I had like some prospects for jobs and like I had connections. I really didn't want to go back to Apple full time. I wanted to get on another career path and ultimately go to where I would be. You know, I wanted to be on that type of path in, in the field that I'd be in. So I spent a few weeks doing a ton of interviews and resumes and everything else. And I found a job on Craigslist where I was essentially a salesperson for like a credit card processing company, which is, I've learned, it's like a fly-by-night company. They pop up, you sign contracts with small businesses. You essentially rip them off because the contracts are, are super binding. They're expensive. The pro, it's like, it was this, it's this terrible underbelly of the credit card world. And I was doing this and I was really good at the sales because I'm a pretty good salesperson. 
But the more that I read the contracts and the more that I understood the business, the more I realized they were ripping people off. And to the point where like, I have a ton of connections with small businesses in Pittsburgh just through my, my own families. And I wouldn't, I would never sign anybody up for this stuff. And as I did that, I did this for like six weeks. But after the third week, I was like, this is terrible. Like I can't, I can't sign these companies up for these contracts. I'm just ripping them off. I mean, it could literally sink a small business that only does a half a million a year, a million a year in revenue. You could sink a small business if you put them in one of these contracts. After like six weeks, I just stopped doing it. I, I like made good money for those six weeks, given that I was a 1099 employee and it was this, it was a whole disgusting thing, but that was like a, that was like a dark time in my own life because it was just like a, a shitty sales job that uh, I just felt terrible about doing. And even to the point where there's one company, it's like a tire shop that I signed them up for a contract and I ended up giving him the commission that I got in order to pay off the cancellation for the contract because I just felt so bad that he trusted me to do this. And now I, that was rough. Yeah. yeah I, I feel you, man. So I've, I've had a, I've had jobs like that too, or where it's like you just you needed something like to float you to the next real thing, and you know the money was decent, but just like a job, you were just like, Ugh, I don't, <laughs> I shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> yeah, and it's I think that's part of like our current economy is that you have a ton of these like white collar kids coming out of college that are educated, but there's not enough jobs for them, so then they go into insurance or they go into this and that and. Uh, you need inside salespeople for all this stuff. And there's a ton of these like low level, just terrible sales jobs that are out there with these companies that aren't giving a lot of value, but they're generating. For the, and so that's a whole, that's a whole other discussion that I realized after graduating college. So I quit that place. I continued to work at Apple. I, at that point, I did have roommates that were paying me rent, which were friends I used to work with at Apple, which helped like keep my house afloat at that point. I was looking then, you know, still looking for my career path and I talked to some recruiters. So this was in uh, March of 2014 and I started to get, you know, some interviews and everything. And then March and April, I started to get job offers, which was nice. And I was like, okay, so, you know, basically can choose my own path here. So I had, by the end of April of 2014, I had like five uh, offers from companies. It was like Heinz. There were, there was this transportation company. Heinz is based in Pittsburgh. There's another, there, so I had these like pretty decent jobs that I could go into. I had a friend that used to work at Apple and he was like, Hey, I'm working at this company. First insight, we do this. Uh, you know, I travel for work. I really wanted to travel for work at that point. I was, I was actually Googling like jobs that you travel for. And there's, there's no good helpful lists on there. And so like working at Apple, when you were selected to like travel for Apple, that was like a huge deal. It's like, if you got to go open a new store, uh, and they would fly you to a place and you stay at a hotel and you get your per diem for food. Like that was the biggest deal when you worked there. It was a huge honor. And so in my mind, like I want to travel. That's, that's a big deal. I forgot to say when I worked at Apple, I opened several stores. Like they would fly you, they would pick a few employees from a store. They'd fly you there. You'd help with training. You'd help open it up. And like, I got picked for a few of those. And that was like, that's a huge honor at Apple as well. And so, so Apple's in the background this whole time. I'm like, maybe I could go into, um, Maybe I can go and be a manager, but I didn't really want to do that. So I talked to this guy who used to work with at Apple. He was working for, for this company, First Insight. It's like a technology startup in Pittsburgh, which there's quite a few of them now. There's Yelp just bought No Wait out of Pittsburgh. There's a company Jazz. I mean, there's there's a few of them out there, but it was a really unique company. And when I when I was going to do the interview, 
the way that they have you interview is you have to do a presentation about the company to the company founder because it's a, wow. it was it was for a sales job and so I had to like go on the website I had to build a deck about the company and then present it to the executive board of this company I mean it was like when I joined there was like 25 people and so the people that are hiring are the, the founders of the company I put on my best suit at the time which at this point I, I've kind of missed the the clothing transition so let me, let me step back one so uh, in college I still was wearing like whatever t-shirts and shorts from high school that, uh, you know, your grandparents buy you, or your parents buy you. And I never really cared about clothing. So in college and we're working at Apple, that was the first time where I was like, oh, you could buy nice denim or you could buy nice fitting clothing or you could buy, you know, that was when I started to realize that the clothing you wear matters because people would make fun of me for wearing jean shorts and rightly so, as I know now, but back then, you know, my grandma bought me these shorts. I don't care. I'm just wearing them. And this is just a, this is just a graphic tee of a skateboarding company or whatever. So working at Apple, there was an H&M in the mall and I would go to this H&M all the time and like buy these cheap clothes. And I was like, man, like people are complimenting me because I'm wearing pants that fit me well, or people are complimenting me about my plain t-shirt because it fits me very well. And that was my first exposure to like, wow, if you dress a little bit differently, people treat you a little bit different. And, and I, I really liked that. And I also liked, you know, new fashion and everything else. So that was my first learning of that. And so then I really cultivated that over the next year. I started to, you know, that was the first time I signed up for Frankenoak was in September of 2012. Started to really dive into like the online menswear stuff and watch YouTube videos. You know, that was when I first found Aaron Marino and uh, Real Men Real Style. And I started to find these videos and that was started my interest. And then making that transition into adult clothing. So then by the time that I worked at Edgar Snyder, I was wearing a shirt and tie every day. That was the first time I bought Bonobos pants. I bought, you know, their weekday warriors and people would compliment me on how well my clothes fit. And I would wear a tie every day because I was, you know, law firm, you wear, you wear nice clothes, you buy nice dress shoes and everything else. And, you know, the lawyers have their Allen Edmonds and they have their custom suits and everything. And so that was when I was, you know, buying nice clothes. And, and that was my transition from wearing a bunch of stuff to wearing nice clothes. And so then uh, First Insight, they work with retailers. So I put on my like best suit. I go in, I do the presentation and you're supposed to do 25 minutes, a 25 minute sales presentation. And so I did this deck and I went through the whole thing in seven minutes. And by the time I got to the end, I was like, uh, that's all I've got really. So I like blew right through it. They didn't really have questions. And I was really creative about my resume at that, at that time. I was taking, I used the iBooks app on uh, the Mac, the iBooks author, and I was creating an ebook for my portfolio. So like it was a chapter by chapter. Here was each of my companies. Here's the stuff I did get Edgar Snyder. And I like handed them out on iPads. And I think they liked that. I got really lucky at the time because the chief operating officer at the company was looking for like sharp young guys that he could train, not necessarily these like uh, huge Oracle salespeople. Cause what we do is we work with big retailers and they're big contracts, big companies, everything else. So they would bring in people from Oracle. They bring in people from SAP and bring them into the sales roles. But they was looking for like young, sharp guys like, like me. And I got super lucky that I interviewed at the right time with the right person and they hired me. And I was, that was like huge. Like this is my first, this is, I always call it like my first big boy job. You know, the, the law firm was, was pretty big and that was nice, regular salary and everything else. But then like, I got my first real job now to essentially get me on this track of, you know, I could be in sales or I could be in technology or retail or something else. And working at, at first insight, we focus on companies, new products. So uh, what I, what I hadn't really put together is every season companies have to put out new 
clothing items because that's how you generate sales. People come into your stores, they buy new stuff, and there's constantly new products from these companies. And that's one of the things that we work on. So as I'm working at First Insight, we work at these we work with these huge retailers, um, Abercrombie Fitch, Gap, and uh, Hellsberg Diamonds, and all these companies. But then I realized, you know, the clothing I'm buying is from Frank and Oak or Bonobos or the Thai Bar and these really small companies. You know, we don't serve them over here with First Insight, but I really like buying these clothes and looking good and dressing well. I have to dress well for these meetings, I have to wear suits and everything else. So I've still got this side passion on the side, but ever since leaving Edgar Snyder, what what am I going to do to flex the other part of my brain, which is the creative side, which is when I like making websites or I like taking doing photography and I like uh, making videos and everything else. In May of 2014, I started with First Insight and I that's my like corporate sales job. But on the side, I was still like shopping for clothes and uh, I really wanted to like do something else. That's when you know, I was still watching YouTube videos and I realized that there was this kind of space where the videos that I wanted to watch, which were typically like reviews, like I really like reading the wire cutter because I like technology. Uh, there really wasn't that for clothing. And so the whole year I kind of just let this gesticulate and I learned more about the retail industry and you know how that functions at a high level. And then I learned about clothing and everything else. And so then that was May of 2014 at December of 2014 was our wedding and we go away to Aruba for 10 days. And this was, that was really the first time I took a vacation in five years maybe like my family would go on vacation when i was working and going to school but i would just go for like two days and come back because i had to work because i was working full time that 10 days so we got married on the 13th we flew to aruba on the 14th we came back the 24th right before christmas so like that that 10 days was an incredible break but i also it also meant it was the first time that i wasn't preoccupied mentally with all this other stuff i was always doing and I just churned in my own head. And that was when I was formulating. I was like, you know what? I could do a YouTube channel and I could, uh, you know, I could do this and these videos and I can, you know, I can shoot with my phone at first. And if that works, I'll buy a camera and I'll do a studio. And so like that whole week, you know, obviously I was enjoying my honeymoon. We went snorkeling and, um, we, you know, did all the honeymoon stuff. But at the same time, I was like, you know, I think there's a real real idea here with this YouTube channel. I feel like I can serve an audience that really isn't being served, which is like straightforward, real reviews with production quality and clear-headed thoughts. And so, like I said in the past, my my crystallizing video that I thought would be like my viral video, I would do this video and it would blow out of the water and I would become super popular on YouTube was this mattress video because we needed to buy a new bed. Now that we're married, at the time I was sleeping on a twin bed, we were going to then buy you know a new mattress and i and at that point i think casper started in early 2014 so it was very new at that time or maybe late 2013 uh but in at the time it was really starting to get some traction casper and these online mattress companies and so we couldn't choose between casper lisa tufts and needle and so i was like i'm just gonna buy all three i'm gonna sleep on all of them because i wear this sleep tracker every day and then i'm gonna do a video on my findings and like that was my video idea at the beach and i was like all right i'm gonna do this and so on the beach, I buy all three mattresses. And then I'm also like, oh, I'll do Frank and Oak. I buy Frank and Oak clothes every month because they do their monthly collections. I'll do a video on that and I'll, and I'll do unboxings and everything else. And so I came home, I had the mattresses and I just started shooting videos in my room. I think I have a picture of my rig at the time, which was like my phone duct taped to uh, a hanger that was then on a chair. And then I shot it at 
I was pointing at myself and then I would use this. I had a second iPhone that was in my pocket. that was my microphone. So then I would sync the video up so that it didn't sound terrible. And uh, I used a work light for my first light. Like my, my first videos, I, I, it's tough for me to watch them just because I hate, I don't like watching or listening to myself, which is going to make this even harder to edit <laughs> uh, the audio. The, that, those first videos were, were so rudimentary, but that was me like testing. I was like, you know, do people care about what I have to say? Will they listen? Will these go anywhere? And so I just shot them on my phone, started posting them to YouTube. And I didn't, I, at the time, I didn't want to tell anybody in my family because I was just like, I don't know if this is going to go anywhere. Nobody... And my family really needs to know or care about me unboxing clothing on YouTube. Like if I did an educational channel, I'd send it to all my friends and be like, watch this and share it. But at the time I was like, you know what, if I'm going to grow this, it's going to be, be people who want to learn about my specific topic or subject area, which is clothing. And so I'll just let YouTube search do its job and help me find the people or help people find me that want to watch this stuff. And so in January of 2015, I posted my first video. Nothing happened. I was like, <laughs> for the first two months, I got like 50 views or 100 views and no comments and anything else. And uh, I can remember, I think my first subscriber's name was Jared from Canada watching a Frank and Oak video. And he commented, Geron, Geron, Geron. And he commented on the video. was like, hey, cool, cool information. And that was enough for me to be like, okay, one guy found me. Let me keep trying this. So I did like a February video. And then I checked out a few other companies. And uh, then it just very, super slow. Like even now, my channel is, it grows very slowly. I find new people. I'm super appreciative of the people I have all three of them that are still listening to this right now. And so like now it's just very slow audience building. So I do that for a whole year. I post like month, once a month, once you know, twice a month or something. And then in the end of uh, 2015, I posted a video on 5-4 Club. And at the time that was like really peak 5-4 Club. And that was the first video that really spiked my audience where it was a super popular video. People were searching for it. People found me, people subscribed, people liked it. And uh, that was the real first inflection point. I was like, all right, I really got something with this because I, I went into it thinking this is going to take me two to three years to get anywhere. And so I just have that mentality every day of just keep posting, you know, look for inspiration, that type of thing. And uh, now I feel like I've gotten somewhere and I feel like it has become more feasible to essentially replace my full-time job because I absolutely love what I do right now. I'm in Switzerland currently. I've spent the past three days here. I'm working with incredible companies. I'm getting an incredible experience working with the smart people I work with, but I don't know that I'll ever have a job this good. And I kind of don't want to ever look for another job this good. So I feel like I can use the channel and the audience that I've built to either land me an incredible job somewhere or just run the Cavalier full time, which is, is truly a dream. I would have to make some changes and do things a little bit differently in order to accommodate different video types or you know, something else. But that's really where I've, I've landed at this point is channels growing. My job's going well. I've got two kids that happened that also happened at the same time. I'm always, I'm kind of like missing a few key points along the way. So my son was born in September of 2015. I would like to say that I only brought one souvenir home from Aruba. We really didn't buy anything, but that was 10 months later. And then my daughter was born in October of 2016. We, we've always, you know, not intentionally leaving my wife on the background of this, but my wife and I have always been on the very much on the same page. We want a big family. We've always wanted kids quickly. We're both young, uh, you know, we, when, when we got married, she was 20 and I was 22, 23, or no, I think I was 24. 
24 or whatever. So we, we know we want kids quick. We want them early. Uh, we want a big family. We want to have our, have our home and, and build that. And so, uh, yeah, my daughter was born in 2016. I guess, I guess we've gone this long. So yeah, so my son was born in uh, September of 2015. And actually in, in June of that year, my dad died. Uh, it was super sudden. He was 47. We were actually at the beach and his heart stopped. He had a sudden cardiac arrest on the beach. And we were all, luckily, we were all on vacation. Uh, that was one of the times I actually did get, go, get to go on vacation with the family. You know, I, at this point, I stopped working at Apple. That was that was really shocking, really tough. Spent a few days in a coma in the hospital. There was just no sign that he would ever come out of it. Yeah, June 18th of 2015. And that was that was pretty tough. Outside of that, my dad was the second youngest out of all those kids. And actually, he has three brothers that had all died before 50. In my family, one of the reasons that I continue to run and exercise like I do, I run not every morning, I run three three or four times a week, just heart problems in my family. And my dad was a big guy. He was six six two and 375. He was a big guy. and we, And he always struggled with his weight and I always worked with him on it. And I always tried to get him to diet and exercise. But at that point, he was so far off of the track, it was really tough to just get him back into some sort of routine where he could actually lose that weight. Uh, you know, when he got married, he was 200 pounds. He's a regular guy. But, you know, stress and poor eating habits and exercise and all that stuff kind of really added up. I got that in my family, too. The uh, the heart, just bad heart disease, you know, on, on my dad's side, especially. It's one of those things that it's so strange because I, I, I went to the doctor recently just to talk, you know, get a check. I'm 32 and like, you know, I want to make sure that that I'm doing everything I can. Uh, I don't want to have a heart attack, you know. And uh, he's like, you know, it's one of those things where his, his he, he my doctor has it in his family too. And he's like, my brother's had one. He's like a marathon runner, you know, and he, like vegan and he's had one. He's like, it's it's one of those weird things that we're just – at this point, you know, yeah, you can do a lot of stuff to prevent it or to reduce your chances, but it's also one of those things that's like very much genetic. So, yeah, it freaks me out, man. But I'm sorry that, uh, that you guys had to go through that. That sounds very, very hard. Yeah. And so I spend, I mean, I, I try to eat as healthy as I can and I exercise. Like you're saying, there's nothing you can really do about it, but you can do your best. And that's something that I think about a lot with my own family and my own children is, the culture of your family is that you are a, a fit family or an, an educated family, then it's very easy to continue that versus trying to get on that path and start that, which uh, is what I'm, I'm really trying to do. And so I, I do love, I mean, it, it's in, in high school, also in high school as an all-conference swimmer. And I, I really liked that. I, so I've tried to continue to at least maintain my strength. You know, I ran a marathon in last year. And that was really an honor of my dad because, you know, he, he always supported me in my running and he came to my swim meets and everything else. And so I really want that to be kind of the, the culture of my family going forward is, you know, we've got these bad genes, but there's stuff you can do about it. That's awesome, man. Yeah, it's I'm very, very much on the same page that way. Um, yeah, I think that's that's so important to instill in your kids so they don't have the uphill battle of trying to reverse damage, you know. Yeah, something as small as like eating broccoli. Like I did, I did not eat vegetables as a kid. I hated them because it was like that was like a weird, you know. I would never really grew up with them. Uh, but now, like my son actually prefers broccoli over pizza, 
because he's so used to having, you know, he eats sardines and avocados and broccoli and like he eats healthy foods. But growing up, I was always a fat chubby kid because all I ate was like pop tarts and high C juice boxes. And I really only thinned out in high school whenever I, uh, I grew and then I also swam. So I, that was my way of shifting from a, I was, I was like five, I was like five, six and like 180 pounds. I was a short, fat little kid. And then I shot up in high school and now I'm a six, four, 170. So I, I've, I haven't gained a pound in like 15 years just because as I went up, I went, I skinned out. That's funny. <laughs> I've stayed about the same. <laughs> I haven't grown in, in either direction. <laughs> yeah. That's also a good thing. Well, yeah, it's, that's, that's a pretty incredible story, man. I didn't, I didn't know most of that about you. You've done a lot in, in your young age, which we're, which we're not. Actually, no, you did mention your age one time. I won't repeat it, but if, if people want to go back and listen to all the episodes, then they might be able to figure out your age. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm 25 now. August is my birthday. And so if, if, anybody, if anybody's still here, you get, you get to know. <laughs> yeah, and, and this is our, our final recording of the Buttoned Up. Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's any stones I left unturned. Yeah, it was, it was thorough, but it, it's, you know, it's, I think it's really interesting. I mean, I, I don't know if other people think it's as interesting to really get that deep dive into people's backgrounds. I think it's super interesting, especially people who are, you know, doing anything um, in, in the realm of, you know, entrepreneurship or online business or anything like that. So, um, so yeah, man, thanks. Thanks for sharing. Hopefully, hopefully some other people find it uh, entertaining and helpful too. Yeah, and I'm glad if anybody did stick around. I'm, you know, now you know me a little bit better. But uh, next week we'll be back to our entrepreneur. Every other week, entrepreneur to a YouTube creator. We'll be looking forward to catching up with you again next week. I'll be back from Switzerland. I'll be posting a few videos here and there, and you will be too. And we appreciate everybody that uh, supports podcast. As we said before, rate us on iTunes. We're now a legitimate podcast. You gotta ask that type of stuff. We hope you guys enjoy it and we love your feedback. You can hit us both up on Twitter. Our, our handles are on the artwork and you probably already know what they are if you follow us and we look forward to hearing from you guys. Thank you for listening to Buttoned Up, a podcast project by Brock McGough of The Modest Man and John Shanahan of The Cavalier and we will see you next week.